Well, hello again, you intrepid Indri. Welcome back to another episode of A Little Greener, your favorite podcast about conservation, nature, and sustainability. I am one of your hosts, Sarah. I'm really excited to be back with you this week. And as always, I'm joined by the fabulous Casey. How are you, Casey? I'm doing okay this week. I just got back from vacation. Um, So coming down from that high, getting ready to go back to work. Like literally just came back, like hours removed from vacation. This is dedication right here. I got off the plane. I showered. I talked to a little bit of family who hadn't talked to you in a week and now we're ready to record. (laughs) You're a priority guys. (laughs) How's your week going, Sarah? Uh, Fine. Yeah. Week. It's good. How did you do since you were on vacation? How did you do with your challenges from last week? We talked well, about our, well, you did half yeah. of your challenge. I remember yeah. while we were even recording. So you got your, your social media follows in all about water conservation. Yeah. If you're following, if you're coming in with a different episode, last week's challenge was to follow some uh, water conservation organizations on social media. And then our beast mode challenge, I think was to use the water <laughs> calculator. So I, as you may have heard during the episode, I was like, yep, click follow. And I was like, Ooh, project wet while I'm like scrolling through our uh, podcast Instagram. So I was definitely exposed to those social media accounts, but also sort of cheated in making it our <laughs> podcast account. Um, and because I was on vacation, I did not do a very good job on my homework. That was, uh, this was, uh, meeting some of my my fiance's family and, and spending more time with some of them. So I wasn't, <laughs> I did listen to us. But <laughs> <laughs> she did some podcast work. That's yeah. very understandable. Very understandable. <laughs> it does only take a few minutes though. I'm, I'm curious to hear your results when, when you do get a chance to take it. Yeah, um, I'll I, them. I also have cheated because I had followed those, all of those recommendations yeah. that I listed prior to the podcast, but I did do my water footprint calculator and I beat the U.S. average. So that's good. My personal water footprint is is below the U.S. average. Um, it's kind of fun, this little measure, like the, the screen behind as you're answering the questions, like it fills up like there's water filling Cute. up on the screen. <laughs> um, I did come in slightly below, but as predicted, as we talked about last week, I was way above the U.S. average when it came to showers and baths. <laughs> so that was the glaring thing uh, that jumped out to me. They do have different categories that you can look through after you've taken it and you can click on them for different tips. So, uh, you know, it was fun. It was fun to take. I probably could have predicted my results and what my tips are pretty well. Get a low flow shower head, low flow faucets, but really just stop with the baths and take shower showers. So that's what I learned from my water footprint calculator. Well, that's fascinating. Uh, because we recorded in advance, I will try and take that by the time that you guys are hearing this. So you will know the results before me recording this. Does the we have a, a competition. For, yes. uh, Except I don't know how it works because it does it by household. Like you enter how many people right. you have. And obviously you have two people living in well, your we'll household. So we'll see how it, how it shakes that out. 
Well, I'm glad that you did your homework today, um, but I have an intro question for you. I'll yeah, get to know your question. And this also seems very unrelated to nature, but it is <laughs> relevant for today's topic. How much time do you spend on social media every day? Oh, this is like a <laughs> potentially a humiliating question. Um, although actually, I don't think I I don't. Well, I guess I don't know. I wonder what the average is for how much pe- time people spend on social media. I actually w- looked at my my Instagram, you know, tells you, and I averaged 42 minutes a day on Instagram for the past week. So I don't know if that's high or low, <laughs> but that's really the big social media one for me. I'm not not a big Facebooker. However, I will say if if we're qualifying YouTube as a social media thing, then it's embarrassingly higher. I don't even know if I could begin to <laughs> to quantify how much time I spend on YouTube. I don't think of it like social media, but I guess it is. So, but uh, anyway, according to according to Instagram, average 42 minutes a day for me. What about you? I I actually think my number is more categorized by screen time. Like my iPhone tells me every week, mm, oh. um, which is like, a, it's a really good factor. It's something I like about Apple is they don't actually, and unlike a lot of social media, they don't necessarily always incentivize you to be constantly on your phone. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a nice little shaming device for me when I'm like, well, that's too many hours. Yeah. Um, y- y- so I average like over three hours of screen time on my phone per day, but that's a lot of YouTube. I, I yeah. like listen to a lot of YouTube yes. while I'm, I'm uh, doing other things, but I'm very active on Instagram and Facebook. I'm not always posting on those things, but I am scrolling a lot. Yeah. So this is something that's connected because I think if you're not spending time outside nature, you might be exposed to a lot of nature things on your, your social media feeds, whether you're looking for it or not. And today we're going to talk a little bit about wildlife and social media and some of the impacts of how we share things, uh, what they have on, on some wildlife species, specifically primates. So stay tuned. Oops, go ahead. Did you want to do some sad news? Oh no. Yes. Yes. Do you want to tell them? Do I want to tell them? <laughs> so, as you know, if, if you've been following, if you've You're been dedicated. listening along the, the past few weeks, we've pretty much mentioned every single week this current wetlands bill that our state lawmakers have been putting through that we have been trying to block and hoping would get blocked that removes protections for our remaining wetlands. And uh, since our last recording, unfortunately, the the last step we were we were hoping for a governor veto that we did not get. So that bill, our that wetlands bill, has been pushed through. So it was a little sad. Um, I think you know both Casey and I, as well as a lot of our friends and family, had been really trying to do their part and reaching out to our representatives. And so some, some sad news to share, especially we know we've got a lot of listeners here in Indiana. So we wanted to, to share an update. If you're not super familiar with it, it's uh, Senate bill 389 and the governor had expressed some concerns about the bill in its current form. And there were some potential amendments, but it ended up getting passed through and he signed it. If you are someone who is not super active politically, I have, <laughs> I, I'm a pretty politically active person. I've suffered through a number of de- these sort of defeats. <laughs> uh, and my advice to you is just keep going, keep working. No matter what 
side of the political spectrum you're on, I truly believe that nature should be nonpartisan. Um, and we should be able to protect it in a bipartisan way. And you can influence that from every point in the political cycle. So when you are looking for candidates to elect during primaries, ask them what their position is on particular nature-related policy legislation, what their views are, what their basis on beliefs are, and see if they match with you and let them know that's important to you as a voter. And then when you uh, get to have elected politicians, you want to keep that pressure on. And I think Sarah's advice for following some of these groups last week on social media is a really good way to keep abreast of all of these different things that are happening. And a lot of these organizations are also going to give you avenues to keep pushing and political pressure does work being active from from people mm -hmm. does work it doesn't always work so it's it's important that we keep involved every step of the process not just when the bill's coming up to be signed and i just hope that you know this little story shouldn't discourage you we should continue to keep pushing and that's the only way we're going to create that future that we're looking for be able to ensure clean water and protected habitats for for animals like our wetland creatures so if you're in indiana one of the things you can do is keep pressure on a local basis just because it's a state law doesn't mean that that's going to be the end-all be-all of particular development projects so it's just one one little hurdle they might have encountered yeah. is is down yeah that's a really good point to keep in mind. And, and also, yeah, thanks Casey for sharing that because this is a newer thing for me. I think I shared that in an earlier episode too, that I, I haven't been super invested or involved in local politics or e even super invested in, in what's going on locally with environmental issues. And so I think that for me, this was a really important way to sort of get myself in the habit. And even if it didn't work out the way that I was hoping it would be or I, it didn't work out the way that I was hoping it would this time, you know, now I'm a little more confident in how to reach out and who to reach out to and all of those things and have learned a little more how to keep an eye and ear out for what is going on. So I think, you know, that was a valuable lesson for me. And, and, and like I said, I do feel like I saw a lot of friends and family getting involved in this as well, which was really cool to see. So hopefully that's a habit we can all keep up now. Yeah. So hopefully you're along for the ride guys. Hopefully you're, you're in it to win it on, on a, whatever's important to you. You can be involved in, you can make a difference. So thanks for listening. And in a moment, we'll have a review from Sarah. Welcome back, everybody. This week for our review, I'm doing again something that maybe is a little, sort of feels a little bit nature adjacent, but is something that I think, I hope might be appealing to people who are interested in spending time outdoors um, and is something that I have done in the past and really enjoyed. So I'm going to be talking about a, a company called Vacation Races. So one of the ways that I will sometimes get my outdoor time in, not as often as I should, but is to go running. And they think that can be a, a fun way for people to spend time outdoors. I'm a very on again, off again runner. I actually do not get a lot of joy in just going out and running around my neighborhood. I should probably try to find more local nature-y places to run and maybe I would enjoy it a little more, but I do really enjoy doing races 
And so one of the things that I came across a few years ago now was this company called Vacation Races. They've been around since 2012 and they, their goal is to put on race events in vacation destinations as the name would suggest. But right now, what that is mainly focused on is doing races in and around national parks. And I was like, holy cow, what a cool thing to do. So it seemed like a really cool opportunity. I did an Everglades half marathon with them. I think it was in 2016 that I did this Everglades half marathon. And at the time I was living in Florida, but I had not really made my way down. I was living in central Florida and had not made my way down to Everglades National Park. I just hadn't made that trip. And so by finding this race and signing up for this race, that prompted me to go and spend some time in the Everglades. So it was a really cool experience and they do mostly half marathons and ultra marathons, which is that's too much for me. But what is an ultra? What is an ultra marathon? Oh gosh, I say fifty. Oh, guys, I am always continually impressed by Sarah's ability to run. I know she is not like very confident in what she's accomplished, but I am not a runner, so I'm always impressed when anyone has the desire or the commitment to walk out their front door and move faster than a walk unless I'm chasing something or being chased by something, I'm probably walking. So, um, so I'm not very familiar with marathons. I also have asthma, so that's not great either. Uh, an ultra that this, I actually don't think I knew this an ultra marathon, at least what I'm looking at right now is just any run that is greater than 26.2. Okay. So any run that's greater than a marathon is an ultra marathon. So I'm not sure I'd have to look at vacation races site to see what the distance of the ultras that they, they offer are, but uh, I stick to the half marathons anyway, and they do it at a, a bunch of different locations. So they have races in Zion, Yosemite, Joshua Tree, Saguaro, Great Smoky Mountains, which is the next one on my list. Um, and they all do also offer uh, these global adventures now. And they also do Trail Fest, which sounds super cool, which is like a three-day camping and trail running event. So I believe vacationraces.com is the website. So if you're interested in any of those things, you can, can look them up. I think the Everglades one that I did is actually not offered anymore. So they change up the locations sometimes, but there's a whole bunch of cool sites that they do these races. Sometimes they are actually in the national parks and sometimes they are adjacent to the national parks, depending on the situation and the setup. But the thing that I, you know, there's a few things that I think are really cool. I was reading kind of a, about the goals of the company and, and what's important to them. Um, and so they talk about, of course, first and foremost, I feel like they really encourage people to get out and explore these awesome places just by what they do. So I love that. They, they say, we believe in, in traveling the world and exploring nature's majesty. So I'm all about that. Get your outdoor time in, go and see some cool, cool places and, and have a cool experience doing it. Um, so they, they also emphasize the importance of community, which I really like because Again, even though I don't train well and I'm very slow, so I tend to run by myself, uh, I do have a lot of great friendships that have been formed through doing these races. Um, shout out to my friend Kim, who's my running buddy. We do a lot of races together. And, you know, Kristen, Kayla, Ryan, you know, these are all people that I am friends with that have formed, been able to form stronger friendships with through doing these races like this, even if we're not actually running together, but just participating in these things together. So it's a cool way that 
that you can build relationships and, and spend time with family and friends. Um, and then the, one of their goals just says that we believe in doing good uh, and they think that's really important. So again, you know, I don't know that they started off with the idea of being an eco-friendly organization, but by the very nature of what they're doing, holding these events in these natural areas, that became a, a very important part of, of what they do. So um, they also have donation programs that go along with these races. So they've raised over $600,000 for parks and for Native American tribes through charity bibs and and uh, do different donation programs that they have. Um, they are now trying to use composting toilets uh, at their races. Anyone who has ever done a race out there, you know, you know about the porta potties and the lions and all of that. So they're trying to, to, to bring these composting toilets to these races now. But one of their, their big things that they initially started doing is having cup-free races. So again, if you have ever run uh, any kind of of organized race from a 5K to a marathon, you know about water stations and all those cups lined up for people to get their their water and their Gatorade. And while I tend to to think positively of runners as a whole, we are not good <laughs> about these. You will see people grabbing a cup or two, throwing it over themselves, drinking it down real quick and throwing it on the ground and, and running off. People will have their snacks or their goos or their chews and throw the trash on the ground. So what Vacation Races has done, being very conscious of being in and around these natural areas that we need to protect is they don't offer those cups at those water stations and they have a reusable pouch uh, that runners can choose to use or you can bring your own um, anything that you want to to bring to drink out of as long as it doesn't create trash they're okay with and their goal is to not have to send any waste to a landfill after an event so they're trying to provide a lot of recycling and a lot of composting options for uh, anything that they do have so I think um, I think that that's a really important thing and I think, you know, as someone who really enjoys doing these races, something that I hope to see a lot more organizations kind of take on and look at some ways that we can start to reduce waste. So I think, you know, there are potential drawbacks with any anytime you have a big, big thing like this and you're increasing tourism to an area, there is the potential that too many people can cause damage, even if you have good intent. But it seems like uh, overall, people who come to these races are being responsible tourists. They mentioned in their first race that they ever did, all they had to pick up was like six little packets of goo. So um, it seems like people are being really responsible as they do this. And so if you are interested, if you are a person who runs or are interested in getting uh, getting into running and you are a person who enjoys visiting natural areas, I would say give it a try. Look up vacation races. And then I did want to mention too, if you're not specifically, uh, you know, in, in the area for one of those races, you can also look up the Council for Responsible Sport. And there are some other events, including distance races, if that's what you're into, that are making strides to be more environmentally friendly. And you can look look up there to see what's been certified and sustainable. So I really enjoyed it. I thought the Everglades race that I did was, was put on really well and well-organized from a running standpoint. Their medals are incredible. <laughs> um, and I, I appreciate what they're trying to do and what they're standing for as well. So check it out if you're interested. If you're going to run, you might as well run someplace beautiful, right? And right. Do, do it for a good cause. So that's all very cool. 
I, I will confess that I probably will not be involved with vacation races, but yeah, all you athletes out there, some of their, they don't really talk about the, they don't like list five K's as a race distance that they do, but a couple of their half marathons have five K's associated. I'm just saying Casey one day, (laughs) it would be fun. We'll do I, it I don't together. know how fun, but I, <laughs> but, uh, I could probably do a 5k. You definitely could do a 5k after some work. Anyway, <laughs> thanks for your review, Sarah. That's very cool. In a moment, we'll come back and we'll talk about primates and social media. All right. Welcome back everybody to our main body section of this episode today. We're going to talk a little bit about primates and social media. So a couple of disclaimers, all of this is my own opinion based on research that I have put together. So it doesn't reflect the views of basically anyone else, just myself. <laughs> um, so we're going to make some recommendations within this episode. And I tried to base that as much as I could on the experts, but this is things that I've put together for the most part and, and we're not experts. So if the experts are listening, Hey, like if we miss let anything, us let us know, we'd love to share more information. Uh, but most of us spend hours every day, sometimes maybe for better, just hours every week, scrolling through social media. And you've probably at some point come across cute, and I put cute in quotes, animal posts. And and many of us probably shared or posted our own animal videos as well. But sometimes it's easy to forget that there are conservation implications to how animals are represented in the media. So today we're going to talk specifically about a group of animals called primates and social media. But we're also going to kind of touch on a couple other topics like the pet trade. And some of these same sort of things that we're talking about today can be applied to other groups of wild animals. I'm thinking like big cats, for example. Mm -hmm. So you can think about those guidelines that we're giving in terms of those animals as well. So my first question for you, Sarah, for all of our listeners who might not be super familiar with the animal kingdom, can you tell us about the primate family? Yeah. So there's a lot of different types of primates. Most people are probably most familiar with monkeys, lots of different species of monkeys, and you've probably also heard of apes. So those are what people mostly think of when they think about primates. And when it comes to apes, we have those great apes. So our uh, orangutans, gorillas, bonobos, chimpanzees that people are familiar with. There are, are also lesser apes. So our gibbon species fall in that lesser ape category. And then we have the wonderful lemurs that Casey has mentioned. And then also uh, some other, a few other animals in there like loris that you have probably seen videos of and tarsiers as well. So lots of different types of primates in this category, but lots of things that they tend to have in common as well. So um, primates tend to be considered to, to be intelligent animals. At least they have a high, they, they're, they have a large brain compared to their body size. They tend to be mentally complex animals, um, often socially complex as well. So they tend not across the board, but they tend to be pretty social animals. 
five fingers, five toes tend to have an opposable thumb usually as well. Those tend to be common traits across the primate category. Yeah. And when, when you look at the whole primate family, there are hundreds of different species and they can be as big as a silverback gorilla being like 450 pounds. And they can be as small as a mouse lemur, which can be teeny, teeny, tiny. And so sometimes I think when people look at that family, especially if they're not really familiar with taxonomy and evolution, it can be kind of hard to grasp how humans and all these mm-hmm. animals are in this same family, but we're primates too, based on those same requirements that Sarah just laid out. We got big brains. It's, it's a compliment to be a primate, I think. <laughs> um, and, and we've got thumbs. We have the most opposable thumbs of all the primates. So that helps us use tools. Um, and another thing that, that a lot of these animals have in common, and it varies across species, but they tend to be more social animals. So there are less species of primates that would be considered totally solitary and they generally require maternal care for a long period of time. So some animals you'd think like turtles, you lay your eggs, you leave. Most mammals require some sort of period of maternal care, but typically primates take a lot longer to grow up. And part of that has to do with having a bigger brain. It's a longer period of development where they're learning a lot more complex skills. And so they have a longer period of dependency. And that's going to factor into some of our conversation today. Now, conservation wise, unfortunately, primates are in a pretty tough spot. A lot of these animals require forest habitats, which are generally under threat. Um, and they, they face a couple other threats too. So at this point, about 40% of primates are considered endangered or critically endangered. Those are the two highest levels basically before extinct in the wild, um, that you have for endangerment and 70% of them are considered at least threatened. And these threats include things like habitat loss. Um, but also along with habitat loss, you have hunting for bushmeat. So some people will eat these animals and the illegal wildlife trade as well. So I always say that uh, primates bear the blessing and the curse of being considered mm. cute. It's a good way to say it. When you're when you're cute, people are much more interested in you. You can think about like the opposite being maybe snakes. People have much more culturally uh, fearful attitudes towards snakes. They don't quite understand them, but primates they resemble us in a lot of ways. So people are more likely to care about them, but that also can complicate some of their conservation as well. So when scrolling through social media, you might see videos of primates in zoos or sanctuaries or rehabilitation centers, or you could see them potentially in situations as pets or during tourist attractions. So there's been many viral videos that I've seen of these animals in situations that could be considered more of an exploitation situation rather than a conservation situation. Um, so just to get one thing out of, of the way first, Sarah, are primates good pets? No, <laughs> no, they are not. If you take one thing away from this podcast, let that be your sound clip right there. Primates do not make good pets. And, you know, Casey's talked about how the things that we're talking about today are, are, are representative of our thoughts based on the research, but this is any animal organization really any conservation organization is going to tell you that primates do not make good pets. And there are a lot of reasons that we're going to dive deeper into some of which, you know, we've already touched on a little bit in terms of their, you know, intelligence or being mentally complex and their socialization needs and all of that. But no, they're, it's, it's, it's not like having a dog or a cat. So we'll, we'll dive deeper into this as we go along. Right. And, and primates have been kept as pets for thousands of years. That doesn't mean they're good pets. 
that doesn't mean they should be kept as pets from an animal welfare perspective. But I also, it falls within some folks' cultural norms to have primates as pets. Um, And I'm not here to tell people like your culture is wrong, but it is like in our own culture and other cultures, we need to be constantly re-examining why we keep certain traditions around. And the more we know about animals, the more we know that the average person and the above average person does not have (laughs) the the resources to be able to properly give a primate what they need. Now, I think here in the U.S., for the most part, people can kind of understand why like a gorilla would be a bad pet, right? Like sheer size wise, I think that's pretty like clear to folks. Now it still happens. Um, but I, yeah, Sarah, they're to- <laughs> I'm just, they're totally intimidating. To oh me. yeah. Like I, I, cannot possibly fathom personally how anybody could look at a gorilla and think, yeah, no problem. Yeah. You know, in the seventies and eighties, especially there was actually a, a, I wouldn't want to say it's a pretty, pretty big industry. Cause from my research, a lot of the same names were kind of popping up, but like primates were regularly imported and you could find monkeys in pet stores. Like that was things that so it's it's much less common now I think as people realize that those are are commonly not good pets for for great apes for example most of those animals become too strong to handle like just a safety issue by the time they're seven or eight years old and those animals live to be 40 50 60 years old in some cases so um that is not a very long time to be able to have your your cute adorable animal but also the loss that that animal has to have in order for you to keep them as a pet you have to remember that that is normally the the time span that they would be hanging out with their moms and we can't provide substitute socialization that's species appropriate for those animals um, and typically those animals if they were not taken from the wild to be taken as pets they were taken away from their moms very early on so even if they're from a well it's not coming from the wild it's still potentially from a, it's still definitely from a situation yeah. that was not developmentally appropriate for that animal so Overall, a lot of that like easy accessibility to get your hands on these animals has decreased because of protections put on primates from importing them from other countries. And also I think the growing public consciousness that these are not appropriate pets for most people. But uh, in our current media context, we we see these animals um, in a lot of situations that might look like they might be good pets or at least might be good to hang out with for a while even if I don't have to take care of it maybe I can just take selfies with it so one of the ways we know that this has been quantified in the impact wise and this has to do with chimpanzees Um, so we'll talk about some caveats on how you can extrapolate that data onto other species but in 2011 a scientist named Steve Ross who's this is kind of a foundational paper. I feel like I see it cited all the time when I was doing research for this, but basically he showed people photos of chimpanzees in different contexts. So showing them right next to a human in like an office situation versus a zoo exhibit versus out in the wild. And he asked them certain questions like, Hey, would this animal make a good pet? And are there issues with its wild populations? And one of the things that they found is that if you showed people a photo of a chimpanzee next to a human, 30% of those people were more likely to want them as a pet. Now we can't necessarily transfer that across all species because 
some people have a base knowledge that chimpanzees, especially adult chimpanzees, can be very dangerous animals. So you portraying a human safely next to a chimpanzee does kind of uh, lend itself to portraying that these are safe animals to be around. But also 35% of them did not think that there were issues with wild populations of chimpanzees, even though that they're an endangered species. Now, setting also matters. Putting a chimpanzee in an office setting versus a zoo setting made a big difference. So people who saw the zoo setting were more likely to understand uh, some of those differences. But when you take them out of a zoo or if you take them out of the wild setting and you put them in a human context, people start to lose real context of how these animals are doing as in relation to humans and then uh, as a population as a whole in the wild too. So again, these are not necessarily entirely trans. We can't make this generalization across all primates, but I think it's a really interesting and important study. More recently, the U.S. entertainment industry, I think this paper was probably a good um, lever to push in that direction. The U.S. entertainment industry has moved away from using a lot of live animals in ads. A lot of the great apes that used to be in California doing commercials and uh, other forms of television or movies have been moved to sanctuaries. And part of that has to do with CGI being context. So computer generated animals, you can make them do whatever you want. (laughs) You don't have to worry about anyone being upset with you about how that animal was treated and you can get it on the first shot. You don't have to make sure that that animal was trained a very complicated behavior and that you got the exact take. So that's a really positive thing as we've seen some of these animals in the U.S. at least moved out of that context and and used less in commercials. And there are, are certain animal welfare organizations, animal rights organizations who have really pushed for that to be the case because of now we know this impact. Dressing a monkey up in a suit has an impact on how people view this animal out in the wild. Um, But we do see a lot of this still in less regulated arenas like social media. So a couple of years ago, there was a trend of finger monkeys. Are you familiar with finger monkeys, Sarah? No, not as a term anyway. I, I think it's referring to like the pygmy marmosets, uh, um, which is the smallest species of monkey in the world. And they're so small that if you put your finger out, they could hold on to your finger. And they were being suggested as pets for people. Basically, these videos are coming around. And I've had people ask me in different professional contexts, like, oh, what about this? And I'm like, no, no. <laughs> um, so they're being I, like marketed as finger monkeys. That's yeah. where they, what they're, okay. Yeah, finger monkeys. Uh, you might also remember the tickling Loris video. Loris is, do you want to describe what Loris's look like? Aliens. <laughs> they're, they're, I mean, they're, they're very small. They just have, they have big eyes. Like that's the distinguishing characteristic for them is they just have huge eyes kind of look like a teddy bear hang out in the trees. You don't think they look like a teddy bear? Yeah. Someone look it up and tell us if who's right. <laughs> they like to climb up An the alien trees. or a teddy bear. <laughs> an alien or a teddy bear, a little bit of both. Um, but there was a video basically of someone tickling the, the loris and it looked like the loris was enjoying it. They like put their arms up. Yeah, they put their arms up. Now, this is the coolest thing about lorises. They're one of the only venomous primates. So people who understand lorises, did you know this, Sarah? Well, I, is there still debate about this though? Maybe. I, I feel like there was still some debate about it. I'm calling but it anyway. Okay. They have, I, I'm calling it venomous today. <laughs> Basically the reason the loris is raising its arms up is they have glands underneath their armpits 
that have poison in them and they will lick their armpits and it will mix with their saliva and it causes an irritation. Like, you know, you can go into anaphylactic shock, basically, if you are bitten by a loris and you're allergic to it and it has these properties, that's a defense mechanism for them. The one thing that I think primates also have a huge issue with is because their faces are pretty similar to us, Loris is kind of excluded. They're aliens, but like a lot of these other animals, um, they look so similar to us. They can exhibit behaviors that look very similar to us. And it's really easy to misread them as the same thing. So for example, if a chimp grins at you, it's not a smile. That's just not within chimpanzee culture, how they express joy, right? This is generally more of either a fear grin or more of an aggressive grin. So when people would watch apes on stage, for example, smiling, they would think, oh, look how happy they are. That was a complete misinterpretation of what that means. And the same thing with the loris trying to lick its uh, its armpits. That doesn't mean it wanted to be tickled more. It meant that it was trying to inflict harm upon the person who was trying to tickle it. And that misinterpretation drove a lot of the pet trade for lorises in Africa and Asia. They were captured from the forests and brought into these situations. These are nocturnal animals. They tend to be a little bit more solitary. They don't do well in most human care settings. It really takes a specialization from a zoo or sanctuary to be able to provide the right care for them. Um, So those are two, I think, big examples I remember recently. Yeah. Do you have a favorite primate, Sarah? I don't really. So I... I, like I was talking about with gorillas, I'm a little bit freaked out by other primates. They're just, because they're so impressive, you know, the, the great apes, obviously, you know, so, so large and so intelligent. I am I'm a little bit intimidated by them, but I think they're amazing. Um, ring-tailed lemurs are probably the first primate that I have a memory of again, just at my local zoo. They're one of the first animals that you would see going in. So I do have a, a, a fondness for ring-tailed lemurs. Um, I think maybe lesser apes just because I've had the opportunity to talk about them in the past in my career. And, um, so I think, uh, in particular white-cheeked gibbons, I've gotten to spend some time around and, they're just amazing to watch and they make some really awesome noises that are a lot of fun to hear. One of those sounds, you know, do you want to give us a gibbon call? No, I sure don't. I sure don't, <laughs> but you can, you can look it up, look up a, a gibbon calling. It is a, a just really fun. And, you know, I used to go to work and hear that call every morning. And so, so maybe, maybe gibbons, maybe the white cheeked gibbon in particular. What about you? I, you're a well, prim- I guess more of a primate person. I'm a primate person. <laughs> My fiance is a reptile person. And I find that reptile and bird people are not primate people. They're like, <laughs> not that I primates. I think they intimidate a lot of people because they do have that next level sort of intelligence factor. And, uh, and that's what makes me attracted to them. I really like an animal that has like its own culture and just these really complex ways of solving things. I think they're amazing. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I, I really do. Like, yeah. I love to learn about them, but I do. There is a little, a sense of sort of intimidation when I'm watching them or yeah, my, my first real experience with them was working, um, in Philadelphia and I got to hang out with the gorillas and mm-hmm. like 
they sort of completely changed the way I thought about myself in the context of the animal kingdom. Cause they just look at you and you're like, Oh, okay. There is just so much happening behind the scenes. Um, but I've definitely spent the most amount of time with orangutans and anyone who knows me knows that they're my favorite. Yeah. Um, they're the best, but I do love lemurs. You mentioned ring-tailed lemurs mm-hmm. and that's actually the species we're going to talk a little bit more in depth about. Cause they're going to be a little bit of our case study when it comes yeah. to some of the impacts that social media has on these animals. Um, so can you describe to us for people who aren't familiar with lemurs, because people understand that monkeys and apes, right? I think, I feel like, I mean, lorises and tarsiers aside, lemurs are a really huge group of yeah. primates that people don't recognize as primates. So if, do you want to explain them a little bit? Yeah. So there's over a hundred different species of lemur it depends a little bit on who you ask exactly how many there are, but lo- lots of different species of lemurs. Probably the ring-tailed lemurs that we just mentioned are the ones that people are most familiar with. If you've seen the movie Madagascar, um, you are you're at least have a a passing familiarity with with ring-tailed lemurs. So they are a, a primate that's native only to the island of Madagascar. That's the only place that they are found in the wild. And they are a, a little different than our monkey and ape species, just in that if you look at their faces, they tend to have like a, a longer snout. They rely a little more on their sense of smell and a little less on their eyesight um, as opposed to monkeys and apes but I was a little too old did you did you watch Zabumafu oh yeah Yeah. I loved Zabumafu so and that was a Shafak right or depending on how you say it yeah, yeah, if you're not familiar, PBS Kids here yeah. in the U.S., if you're familiar with Wild Kratts, before yeah, Wild Kratts. love Wild Kratts. Wild Kratts is great. A, a child the other day, I, she was like, do you watch Wild Kratts? And I was like, I am too old for Wild Kratts, meaning that I, it wasn't around. Well, okay, I should rephrase. She, <laughs> she said, did you watch Wild Kratts? Oh, okay. And I said, I'm too old in that I You was, didn't watch it as a kid. I, it, wasn't, it wasn't around when I was a kid, but she goes, no, you're not. And I was like, you're right. You are correct. I, I am not. I watch Wild Kratts now. <laughs> I have watched Wild Kratts. It's incredible. Um, if you're not familiar with this, the Kratt brothers, they actually had several shows before yeah. this one. The early one, I think, was Kratts Creatures. Um, but when I was in that like perfect molding age, they had Zabumafu. Um, and Zabumafu was a character on the show, partially played by a lemur named Julian and partially played by a puppet. Um, um, and he he would have animal adventures and I can sing lots of songs from it. Um, but he's a cockerel shifak. Yeah. 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 So again, lots of different species and they do, you know, Casey mentioned mouse lemurs earlier. So these are a, a lemur that they're like three inches long or something. So and tiny. yeah, um, I think they maybe weigh a couple of ounces or something all the way up to the Indri. So if you were wondering what on earth I was talking about in our introduction, I-N-D-R-I is the name of that animal. And that I believe is the largest species or one of the largest species of lemurs that can get up to like 20 pounds or so. So a lot of variety um, in this really cool primate that's found in Madagascar. It is the largest living lemur. Um, one thing that we should should point out is that the, we're discovering new species of lemurs all the time. Madagascar is one of those places where there's still 
thousands of species that need to be discovered and they're still making kind of differences between species that we know exist but not realizing the populations don't intermix and that they're different enough um but there were lots of weird weird extinct species only there were like koala looking lemurs and and things that were really large so it's an amazing group it's considered more quote primitive uh species and like sarah said they've got more of a snout they've got a wet nose typically like your dog um, so they, they are able to do it. They also have some really cool other features like um, a tooth comb, like they mm-hmm. have special teeth that are helpful for grooming, but they're an incredibly diverse group of yeah. primates. Um, and unfortunately, only living on one island in the world, we've lost about 50% of Madagascar's forests in the last 70 years. And the pet trade uh, has been a huge issue for lemurs. Again, we, we care about cute things. If you looked at a lemur, so again, ring-tailed lemur, she mentioned Madagascar. King Julian is the ring-tailed lemur. He's yeah. the main main guy from there. Uh, he's a lie because lemurs are, are matrilineal. So he would be a queen. Queen Julia would be much more <laughs> accurate because um, she would be in charge of boys stink in the <laughs> literally literally <laughs> well done. Well done. um they have stink fights to determine who's in charge for the boys but the girls always rule um, so uh so lemurs i've lost my place because i'm just so like <laughs> that was a really good pun. that was yeah. a really good <laughs> um uh, oh yeah so so basically my point was you look at a lemur you're more likely to think it's a cat in fact for ring-tailed lemurs their latin name is lemur cata because literally like cat like a lemur that looks like a cat and lemurs means ghost which is cool they're ghost cats but they don't look like primates you don't inherently think of them think of them as being as intelligent and as socially complex as the average monkey, but they have such amazing adaptations that really necessitate the company of other lemurs for, and still that long childhood that they would learn all of those things from. So some recent things that have kind of popped up on social media about lemurs, um, one happened in Madagascar, and there was a video of two kids basically playing with their pet lemur, and it looked like the lemur was asking them for more pets. He may have been asking them for more pets. And the other one was in England, they were doing a lemur yoga session. So you can think about like goat yoga, where you have baby goats running around while you're doing yoga. This was that, but with ring-tailed lemurs and ring-tailed lemurs are one of the most common primates kept in, um, in zoos and in the right setting, they actually are very successful in proper human care, but in groups, they are the most social of all the lemur species. They live in the biggest groups. And what I think people's first instinct a lot of time is when they see these things is to say, oh, I want one. Oh, I want to do that. I want to go and do lemur yoga. I've seen people do goat yoga. It looks awesome. (laughs) But some recent studies have come out, people who've been studying the pet trade and lemurs, and they found a huge increase in people starting to Google things like, how do I get a pet lemur? Now I've been around people who are like, I want XYZ animal. That's totally inappropriate as a pet, as a pet. And sometimes when you're like, that's a bad idea. They're like, I'm joking. And most people are, they're not seriously going to try and get a lemur, but we don't actually have necessarily great numbers for all the people who are actually trying to get a lemur. You don't know that. And so while this showed a huge increase in people interested in it, we're not really sure exactly how that's impacted it. Again, with the lorises, we know that it drove a lot of the trade. Um, so it can be pretty well inferred that videos like these can drive an increase that demand. 
So in videos like these, there's basically two things that I find troubling, and that's the welfare implications for the individual lemurs and the conservation implications. So Sarah, what welfare concerns would you have as keeping that exotic animal as a pet? We've covered a little bit like that, but yeah. yeah so, I mean, I think we, we talked about the big thing is the socialization, right? So regardless of whether they're a, a very social animal, like we were talking about with the ringtail lemurs or even a primate, that's not quite that social. They do still have those, that early maternal care need. And as much even if you're someone who's like, oh, I'm going to spend, I stay at home and I'm going to spend 24 seven, I'm going to be with this primate. We're not the same. We're not the same species and we can't provide the same type of socialization that these animals would need. We can't, we can't replace what their natural socialization would be. Um, there's also issues with zoonotic diseases when we're talking about lots of different animals, but that increases with primates as well. There's going to be an increased number of things that can pass back and forth between humans and animals. So, you know, we are living in a, in a COVID world right now. And we, we know that other primates have gotten, have contracted COVID-19. We've seen that as well, you know, so lemurs could get that disease from us. We could get things from them as well. So um, there's wealth, welfare concerns both ways from there. And then just the time and the resources that it would take to uh, adequately provide for an animal like this. So, I mean, Casey and I, we both have pets. We have dogs and cats. Um, I have in the past several months have had health concerns with both my dog and cat that were very costly for me. So you can think about what, you know, the cost of just keeping a dog or a cat is that's not going to come close to comparing to all of the resources that you would need, whether that's time, space, or money to adequately provide for what an animal like a lemur would need. So I think, you know, in terms of space, in terms of food, um, in terms of veterinary care, all, none of those things are really going to be able to be successfully met by your average person. Yeah. And, and something we see in, uh, in some of the surveys that have been done about lemurs being kept as pet in, in their native, uh, Madagascar is that they do tend to die after a couple months. they just don't have the, they're not equipped with the resources to be able to provide for this pet. This pet should live 10 to 30 years, depending <laughs> on, on the setting that you're in. Lemurs in human care regularly live into their late teens, early twenties. If given the right context. And so this is not exclusive to Madagascar, but it's something that you always have to, to think about when you're taking in an animal. Also something that I didn't put in our outline, but like if that animal bites someone, mm -hmm. that's a safety risk for humans. And the consequences for that, for the animal can be bad as well. You know, uh, people in the U S have had pet lemurs. I think there was a story in Florida where a guy had his pet lemur on the beach and it bit people and he had to get charged because that's a safety risk. You can't right. do that. Um, so there's also human costs as well. Um, so th that, that individual animal, you have to be questioning about its care in, in kind of a pet setting. What about what implications does keeping a lemur as a pet have on the wild populations of lemurs? Yeah. Well, you just talked about, I mean, as a group, how endangered lemurs as a group are and the fact that they are only found on this island, like this is, this is their one habitat and they're losing their habitat. So we're talking about a group of animals that's already endangered, that's already dealing with decreasing po population and habitat 
fragmentation. And now we're taking them out of their population. Like you just said, Casey, they're generally speaking, not going to live very long. So it's not like we're taking them from the wild and building a bred in captivity population. So they're, they're only lasting a few months and then they have to go back out and, and find more. So we're just putting increased pressure on an already declining decimated population. And then as that, you know, we're talking about the, the seeing these things on social media and increasing that demand. And so it just becomes a vicious cycle that these pets are not lasting long. And then they're increasing the demand for more to be taken from the wild, basically. Yeah. And, and something we might not think about because we do see ring-tailed lemurs in a lot more of the media as far as the species goes, uh, as far as other lemur species go, but they did a population study on ring-tailed lemurs. And this particular population study only found, I think, 200 or sorry, 2,500 of ring-tailed lemurs left in the majority, like the biggest populations of them. Um, Now, other people have argued that that's an incomplete study, that there's a lot more of them out there. Um, I believe that study was by Kim Reuter and they, and, and other scientists as well. Um, <laughs> but basically they, they found that regardless, those populations are declining a whole lot. And a pet study done found that over a six month period, 3000 ring-tailed lemurs were being kept as pets. And so they were able to find more pet ring-tailed lemurs than they were able to find ring-tailed lemurs out in the wild. Now, under good circumstances, ring-tailed lemurs can bounce back pretty easily from population declines, but that's assuming everything's going well. They do that in years where there's more productive fruit production, there's not a drought going on. Those things are going to be complicated by climate change and habitat loss, um, but definitely the pet trade is going to put those pressures on there too. And it's not to blame people living in the area. I I'm not here to police people's relationship with their natural resources. Um, And that's something that came out of that, that showing that lemur yoga video is some people in Madagascar expressed some resentment that they were getting blamed for the lemur decline while people in Western countries in richer areas got to profit off of their Mm -hmm. natural heritage. Like lemurs don't belong in England. Right. And yet those it's okay for those people to make money off of them. And it's not okay for people in Madagascar, about 79% of the Madagascar population lives on less than $1.90 a day. So they are in this biologically rich area in a place that has a lot of natural resources and are often, these natural resources are exploited by outside companies, outside countries. And so us like being like, it's okay if I'm in the U S and I have a pet lemur, it's a captive bred pet lemur, like is a little bit of a slap in the face to the people who actually live alongside lemurs. It's not cool. (laughs) And the other part of it is that 50% of the people in that pet survey cited the reason they had pet lemurs. Other people were like, oh, I decided to keep one because I like it or it's part of my culture. I kept it because it was otherwise going to be eaten for bushmeat. But 50% of the people cited the increased revenue that these animals would bring from tourism. Hotels that offered experiences with, with lemurs made way more money. It could offer their prices of their room at a much higher price than places that didn't. And that's something that is driven by outside folks like us. So if you think about this vicious cycle, a friend goes to Madagascar or South America, where there's lots of monkeys or Africa, 
takes a photo with a lemur or a monkey and then shares that photo online. Now more people want to have that same experience and they want to spend their money at those facilities that are helping drive the trade. Um, This can be a company. It can be an individual person being like, do you want to take a picture with my pet monkey? That's happening a lot in Morocco with Barbary macaques, for example, and taking selfies with those animals, participating in these areas where these animals are not getting to, to live their natural lives just drives the market for taking more of those animals out of the wild. So that cycle just continues to perpetuate itself as long as there's still demand for it. So today we're going to talk a little bit about cutting that demand. So really three things to do is to be a responsible tourist. So you don't want to be the first person posting that video in the first place. Number two is to be vigilant about the videos you share online, whether it's a tourist, whether it's someone with a pet animal and how that can be perceived. And we're going to talk a little bit how to do that. And then also be vocal about it to, to, to talk about this with other people as well. So I decided I was going to do a stoplight system for sharing primate videos. This is based on my informed opinion, um, but it also has a lot of information coming from a 2019 paper by Marilyn Norconk and some other folks, as well as the IUCN's non-human primate specialist groups, best practices for responsible images with non-human primates. So stoplight system, green light is the go for it, right? Is this true across? I feel like it's true in other countries. I think so. Green means go. Ireland. Yeah. Green means go. go. Yeah. Green means go. So if you're, you see a video online, you come across David Attenborough's narrating the animal is in its natural habitat, interacting with natural objects, doing natural things out in the wild. No humans involved at all. That's a go for it. Go do it. Share that conservation video. Share that, that orangutan using some tools or those chimpanzees, (laughs) you know, interacting with each other. Totally fine. If there's humans involved, um, there should be some sort of context. So they should be behind a barrier would be one thing, or they sit at a great distance, which the IUCN suggests at least 23 feet away. It's about seven meters and added context of study. So imagine like Jane Goodall studying chimpanzees from far away and she's got her notebook or she's wearing a mask or something like this, this adds greater context that she's not a random person approaching a group of chimpanzees that she's there for study purposes. Yeah. And I think that the context is important. And I think that, well, we'll probably talk about this in your next, I don't want to jump ahead on, on your yellow light system, but, but I, yeah, I think we're not necessarily saying that a photo that shows something other than this means that something bad is happening correct it's just in terms of if if you share this photo could it give the wrong impression and so i think for this green light category it would be really hard to give the wrong impression by just sharing this photo right if someone comments on that yeah definitely if someone comments on that like oh i want one as a pet like that's a totally self-generated thought there's nothing within the the context of the video or the photo that's implying that to to them and that's the important part and so yeah as you talked about like this yellow light is not a this could this is an iffy situation this is a this could give the wrong impression without the proper context so some things that could, could add to that, some, some features of that photo or video could be that that animal is in an unnatural setting, that animal is interacting directly with a human in some sort of way. So it's important 
that there are many reputable places that could be producing content like this. So think about like, I follow a lot of orangutan sanctuaries. You're going to see humans carrying baby orangutans. Mm -hmm. Now, what I know about that is that those baby orangutans had their moms killed and were taken into the pet industry and then rescued. And they're currently being rehabilitated to go back out into the wild. So they're going into the forest, they're teaching them all the skills they need. But how many people could look at that person not knowing the context and think, I want a baby orangutan to ride on my back. Yeah. It's so neat. Now it's important to note that a lot of those places, they have to be really specific about who's interacting with those animals from a safety standpoint, from a a psychological developmental standpoint, you don't want people coming in and out of these animals lives necessarily, but also from a disease transfer standpoint, there have been orangutan sanctuaries that have had things like tuberculosis come in because they let too many tourists come into that area. Um, So that's a threat that tourism poses to some of these areas, but one of the things that, that you might want to look for is things like a caretaker wearing PPE. So I think when any of us, I mean, maybe less so now, but if you see someone wearing a surgical mask, for example, while interacting with an animal, it, it feels like something that's not like playing with your dog. You need an extra layer of protection. Another thing in there is interacting with an unnatural object. Lots of reputable zoos and sanctuaries use unnatural objects in their zoo enclosures. And that is to promote that mental and physical and social stimulation for those animals. It doesn't have to look exactly like nature to, to meet the end goal, but you know, we're thinking about things like a ball or a puzzle feeder. We're not talking about things like a cell phone. Like we're talking about things that add to their development. So is this, in this video, can you tell clearly that this animal's in a zoo? Are there others of the same species interacting with them during it? Those can be things that can help add context. And if it's not in there and you feel really strongly, maybe you work at this place, maybe you visit this place, add the context yourself. If you take the video, they found actually one of the best ways to do that is just to overlay text on the the video or the photo itself so that it can't be removed when someone shares that it can't, the context can't be taken away from it. So that's kind of the yellow light. Do you have anything to add for that one? No, I I like that. I really like that tip about the text on the video. I didn't think about that. That's a really good one. And, but yeah, just to say, so things in this category might require you to do a little more research before you think about sharing it. So, you know, you might have to look into that place or that organization before you want to pass that image along. Or right. And, and we'll talk about some ways to tell if the place is sketchy or not. And the red light is of course, stop, don't share. Anytime you see an animal wearing, in this case, primates, especially wearing human clothing, that's already a good red light to be at. Like there are some sanctuaries that might have their apes wearing diapers in some cases, but like, that's a very narrow realm. In a lot of cases, you'll see animals dressed up in clothing. It really gives the wrong impression again of that these animals are domesticated. They're socialized like us. They're easy to take care of. They're not dangerous. Uh, If you see them interacting with other exotic animals with no barriers. You may have seen an orangutan using a baby bottle to feed tigers, for example. That's not a natural behavior. (laughs) That's a staged photo op. Uh, If you see them interacting with the general public or strangers, if you see them doing a behavior like smoking a cigarette, which is weirdly a thing a lot of chimpanzees and orangutans have been subjected to, eating hamburgers or like other very humanized food. These are all things that are, I, to me, 
I haven't come across a context where I felt it's worth sharing those videos. What we find is like, you might think like, I'm going to share this and I'll provide the context for people in my post. If you're going to do that, screenshot it because you don't want to drive the engagement numbers for that thing. All the internet is going to see is that that video has 40,000 likes or 40,000 shares. It's not going to pick up from the fact that you shared it because it's bad. So if you're going to to share it and give somebody a lesson on it, screenshot it and then share that video, that uh, screenshot so that it's not increasing the engagement numbers. Sarah, if you saw someone posting an inappropriate video of an animal, something that was in the red light category, on Facebook or Instagram, what would you do? I mean, I think the big the biggest thing is is not to forward it on as we talk about. So I'm gonna end end the the train at myself is one really important step that you can take. I think if it's someone that you know well, like if if this is a truly a friend, a friend in real life that you're seeing share this, hopefully that's a, a situation that you could approach and it doesn't have to be publicly calling them out or bashing them for this. Um, but you can have a conversation, you know, whether that's in a a message or the next time you see them. But yeah, I've had that happen where people have not necessarily shared with me, but talked to me about a video that they saw that was really, that they, they thought was really cute. And I have to have that conversation. Well, I, I totally get it. I see why you think that it is a really cute animal, but actually, did you know that this is what's going on. I'm thinking in particular of this Loris tickling video uh, where I've had that conversation before. So having that conversation with in private, if it's uh, somebody who you actually know, and uh, I, that's that's probably the biggest thing for me. I'm not much of a Facebooker, so I don't tend to get in the the public commenting as much, but but certainly stop the sharing and have those conversations if it's somebody that you know personally. Yes, I definitely recommend like a private message if you're not like chatting with them on a regular basis. But one of the things they did another study showing, and it it was one of those that they admitted it was a very imperfect study, but they wanted to see if like people came across a post where lots of other people were commenting how cute that animal was. And if people wanted it as Mm -hmm. pets, it's, uh, you don't want it to become like a, a combat my, my, yeah. And especially like a, my team versus your team sort of situation where like, well, I'm special and I can take care of this animal and I have the ability to do it. Um, they actually found that the most effective way of combating it is to mention the conservation implications for that species, not trying to figure out what individual human has the resources to give this animal, especially because people misinterpret things all the time. And they're, they're going to say, well, that monkey looks really happy in this situation it's, it's not a good look at least to be on like the, I don't care if the animal goes extinct because most of the people who feel that way about the animal being good in the pet trade love animals. They're just not necessarily informed about the conservation implications that that individual being in the pet trade and sharing this video has on the populations out in the wild. So sharing that, if you don't know this person super well, and you're not going to have this conversation, like having that conversation commenting, like, Hey, I know this is really cute, but you know, we see that lemurs are endangered and you know, this is really driving a lot of them going towards extinction. That's more likely to change minds than having a Facebook argument with probably a stranger, Mm -hmm. probably not even your friend, a friend of a friend who's decided that they want a monkey. Right. 
it's not worth having, especially because a lot of that's going to just be like, well, my friend has one and it's great. Um, it's just, it's not worth that. Have, have that conversation about the conservation implications. And that's going to be a much more impactful way of changing people's mind. Even if it's not the person you're talking to, even if it's just the spectators, because that's the thing about social media is you don't know how many people are seeing those comments anyway. That's one way to help mitigate the harm from some of those videos, even if you don't know the person super well and you don't yeah. want to get into a fight about it. That's um, a, a, a good approach to take. I like that. And that's interesting to note. And I think, you know, sometimes two things I want to say first is that, yeah, I absolutely agree that I feel like most of the time I see people sharing videos like this, it's because they love animals. Like that's where the intention is coming from. And that's a good thing. So hopefully if you approach that situation correctly, you, you can really help because you, you actually want the same thing, right? You, you both want a positive outcome for these animals. So, so thinking about approaching it from that conservation standpoint, I think is a good thing. And then also sometimes it's not, it's, not even a, a, a person. It's not a friend or a friend of a friend. It's some organization that might be sharing a, a video like this. And then I think absolutely reaching out to them and pointing out the, the negative impacts of sharing videos like this could be super important too. Yeah, absolutely. Especially if it's someplace that you respect, like you're seeing them share something that you don't like, just like come from it from a standpoint, knowing that they probably share a lot of the same values. they just don't have that context of, of what this really means. Now it's possible that you're going to come across these situations in person as well, not just on social media. I will give you an example. I went to my dad at his garden center has like haunted hay rides and things like that. And so since moving away from home, I love to go to other places that have like hay rides and, and orchards and things like that, just to see what it's like. Cause I never got to do that as a kid. Cause I was always working. <laughs> um, and I went to one and it had like, you know, a I, I'm gonna be the first to admit, admit that like my family growing up had livestock at a petting zoo for that time during the year. And it was not a good animal welfare situation because no one involved really was an animal welfare sort of person. That's something that we stopped over 20 years ago. Um, but still something you're going to come across at lots of places. And I actually saw lemurs at this place in our city. Wow. I was blown away and also furious um, because it wasn't a really great situation for them. It wasn't a very big enclosure. There wasn't a lot of enrichment. You know, these, these animals deserve a better life than, than what they didn't have a spot to sun in like that sort of situation. So if you're looking to do animal experiences, some of the places that you can look to, um, my probably two favorite things are the association of zoos and aquariums. That's the gold standard for certification for zoos. Doesn't mean if a zoo doesn't have that standard that they can't be good. But if you're like, I really have no idea, no context, uh, that's one place to look to make sure that they meet really rigorous standards that are set forth and they've been basically inspected by a third party to make sure that they they meet these higher standards. Zoos are different than sanctuaries. They have different sort of standards. So there's also the Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries that tends to be more highly looked upon situation. There's other places who are not going to be certified through that. Sometimes that has to do with money. A lot of sanctuaries, especially are taking in a lot of rescued animals and they are working with what they got. They're doing a good thing, trying to take a lot of these animals out of pet situations um, and provide them the best they can, but you know, they're not always able to provide them with gold star care because 
it is a money factor. And that's why most people shouldn't have them in the first place. The more we drive down this trade as well, the less overburdened these sanctuaries will be with former pets. So let's say you're going to a place and hey, maybe you're, you're like me and you stumble across animals not expecting them to be there, like in the case of that that hayride, or you're just going to an animal attraction. The two questions I like to ask are the ones we asked about that lemur video is, does this animal have good welfare? So if I know a primate and it's a primate, specifically a primate species that is social, because there are some, some primate species that are not like, does it have others of its same species around it? Does it have opportunities to exhibit natural behaviors for lemurs? It's going to be doing things like climbing and sunning themselves to stay warm. And a lot of their behaviors are social based as well. Does it have enrichment in there? So different objects that might stimulate some of those natural behaviors. And the other thing is how does this animal being here help or harm species out in the wild? It's my personal opinion that an animal, like we shouldn't have an animal just because like, I, I think like domesticated species are a different thing. That's a companionship Mm -hmm. thing, but for exotic animals, what is the point of them being there? And so for me, and this is a me thing, I want to know that that animal being there has some sort of educational purpose for the public and ideally has some sort of reciprocal relationship with the wild as well, where it's, I'm seeing this lemur here in this zoo part of my money goes to supporting animals out in the wild so that the lemurs don't go extinct out there. It's not just about the ones who live here, but what are they doing as ambassadors for their wild counterparts and how does them being here help animals around the world be safe? Do you have anything to add to that, Sarah? I, I think those are good to, to ask. I think it can be hard sometimes. And especially yeah. if you're not Casey, I work in the animal field and I, there's so much that I don't know about lots of different, there's animals that I've never heard of. There's animals that I've never been around. Um, There's lots of details of of animal care and welfare that I'm, I'm not familiar with. So it's hard and it can be hard for the average person to sort of know what they're looking at when they go. So, so ask the questions. Don't, don't be afraid to ask the questions directly uh, of the places that that you're visiting to, they should be able to answer these questions for you. Um, And that's what the accreditations that Casey was talking about, the Association of Zoos and Aquariums and the the Global Federation of of Animal Sanctuaries, those things are going to help. Like if, if, an organization is accredited by the AZA or the Association of Susan Aquariums. They have to be doing those things. They have to be not only meeting those animal welfare guidelines, but they have to be contributing to education. They, they have to have education programs. They have to be contributing to conservation of species in the wild as well. So that just helps you do your homework. But to Casey's point, there are, there are great places who don't have those accreditations. You just might have to do a little more more research and ask some of those questions. A couple of kind of tangentially related things. So sorry if I'm derailing you, you Casey, for a minute here, but that I just wanted to mention real quick, you you just mentioned our pets are having domesticated species and that being different. And that's something that we didn't hit on too much, but that's, you know, that's part of all of this. Primates are not domesticated species. These are wild animals. So even if they are species or even if a particular animal has been habituated to be around people as maybe we were seeing, you know, in some of those, those lemur videos, they are not domesticated. That is a very different thing. And they still have all of their innate 
instincts and needs and behaviors as well. So their behavior can be unpredictable. So that's an important thing to keep in mind, you know, if you're still struggling with this a little bit and kind of feeling like, but I, but I've seen these things and they, they look, you know, happier or whatever. I don't, I don't understand how this is different from, from having a dog or a cat that that's a, a big thing right there that they're not domesticated. Um, the Duke Lemur Center actually has some really good info on why lemur specifically, but also primates in general, don't make good pets. They've got, they go into more detail on that and the difference between domestication and, and habituation and, and all of that and a lot of other things as well. So that's a good resource if you're looking for more. And the other thing that I kind of wanted to just mention too, is we're talking about social media is that we know just generally speaking that social media doesn't tell us the whole truth, right? Like we see that with people, you know, we tend to share the the most extreme parts of our lives, right? Or we can kind of shape how, how we're presenting ourselves. And so the same is true, I think, with with this as well, you know, th- these photos or videos that you might see that are quote, these quote unquote cute pets they're, they're shaping that story for you. And they are not telling you (laughs) the the full truth of, I mean, they're showing us things that might look cute that we've just talked about are actually harmful things, right. That are, that are going on with these animals. So there's that. And then they're also not showing you all of the other things that go on behind the scenes with this, if that makes sense. So I know totally, I think maybe to be a little clearer, like some of these animals are, uh, I want to say some, and I'm not saying anything specifically about anything we've talked about today, but some animals are wildly abused in these situations. And especially those situations where you see animals dressed up in clothing and things like that. The reason they're able to interact with people is sometimes because they've been habituated using fear-based techniques to act appropriately in this situation, or you will get punished. Um, And that is not how places like the Association of Zoos and Aquarium accredited facilities work. And that's another really important part of that is what did it take for that animal to exhibit that behavior in the first place? And that's what I think you're bringing up, Sarah, is that that part of it too. So never get a primate as a pet, guys. That's also the other part of it. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks for hanging out with us and we'll be back to give you our take-home action. All right. Welcome back, everyone. We are at the take-home action portion of this episode. And I'm going to be honest, we struggled just a smidge about (laughs) what exactly we wanted to ask you guys to do. So everyone has their own relationship with their social media, right? Like Sarah said she doesn't do a lot of Facebook, but she does a lot more Instagram. I am not generally someone who posts a whole lot, or sometimes I'll do for like three days and then stop. Like, (laughs) more. Um, so I know that your social media page is something that's like curated reflection of you for some cases, or maybe you just like to post every three seconds and then you can definitely do this one. Um, so basically our, we have our two modes, right? We've got our regular mode. If you're feeling it, find one of those green light videos, something that you feel really confident that is beneficial for that wildlife. And you can share it with some of the information you learned on this podcast today so that you can put something positive out into the ether of social media and 
help inform other people who might be, you know, valuing what your opinion is. And if you want to, you can link us, you can link, link places like Duke Lemur Center or the IUCN's recommendations for those responsible images with primates, whatever you want to do. Um, but that's one of those ways that you can put it out there. Our beast mode is if you have the opportunity, if someone's posting something, that's one of those yellow light bordering on green light situations, have that hard conversation. Like it can be hard to be confrontational, but also this narrative can't change if we're not having hard conversations with people that we really love and approach it from a place of love, approach it from a mutual love of animals and talk about how this impacts animals out in the wild as well. And I think that if we can do that a little bit more often, we're going to be able to take down some of the engagement on these harder videos and try to change the narrative a little bit. And if you have a friend who says they want a monkey as a pet, just send them our way. <laughs> tell them no. Tell them, yeah, um, tell them to no. listen to this episode. <laughs> listen to the episode of this podcast. We'll drive I, our own engagement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see lots of cool green light photos and videos being shared. I'm going to go find me some David Attenborough to share. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And we'll, we'll, we'll share some on our social media too. And um, we'll introduce you to the white cheeked gibbon in case yeah, you're not well, well, that's them, what, yeah. yes. Yeah. We'll, we'll find a video with the sound so that people can yes. hear what's will be much better than me trying to replicate it. <laughs> and remember guys, if you made it this far, you're dedicated and we'd love to have you follow us on social media, send us an email at a little, little greener podcast at gmail.com. Tell us how you're doing. Tell us if you're doing these challenges, if you just want to say hi, we want to say hi to you. We're loving what we're doing and we want to build this little community. Thanks for being here, everybody. And we will see you next week.